Hello, people of the way. Blessings in Jesus. If you have your Bible, please open up to Mark chapter 8, the book of Mark chapter 8. We continue our study through the New Testament. Now, we have to remember last week, where, remember last week in chapter 7, we see the clash of tradition and Messiah, where, you know, on one side, included in this clash, what we've seen, remember in the prior chapters too, you have the religious establishment, and they're together with the political establishment. So you have the political and religious and th those establishments, and they're plotting together to destroy Jesus. And the multitudes, they're following our Lord. They're following Jesus. And so you see here in Mark chapter 8, let's begin our study here in verse 1. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. Now, remember several weeks ago when we looked at that multitude and how Jesus sees them and when he looks upon them, he, see, he has compassion because he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. But then you look at the priesthood you look at the Le Levitical priesthood, the Kohanim, you look at the very ones, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, you look at the religious establishment, and you know, especially when you have, if you've been walking with us for a while and you remember our studies through Torah, and you know, when you have that uh, uh, base plate going forward in the Bible, the base plate of Torah going forward in our studies in the Old Testament, and even here in the New Testament, you start to understand like, oh my goodness, what in, what in the world is happening with these priests? Because they're the supposed shepherds of Israel. Shepherds of Israel, you see? They're supposed to be leading the people to the Lord. And they're that prohibitive wall instead. And so when Jesus looks at the multitude and sees them as sheep without a shepherd, it's easy to understand his compassion. Very easy to understand his compassion, especially with the defunct priesthood, especially with a priesthood in whom the formula is wrong. You see, it's not just a title, you know, oh, look, I'm a priest, I'm a priest. Oh, look, I'm Kohanim. Oh, look, I'm a part of the Levitical priesthood. It's not just a title where it's like, you know, you get the priest parking spot, you know, and you get all the, 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 uh, all the, the, the special perks of being a priest. No, and that's how they were treating it. Oh, this is my job. Like, you know, like, you know, I'm entitled to this. No, it's a calling. It's a calling. There's very specific uh, tasks and responsibilities given to the priesthood by the Lord. And you say, well, that's, you know, that's in the earlier time. In, in, in the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, that was 2,000 years ago. And in the priesthood, that was even further, you know, in history. And I'm a new covenant believer. Well, listen, praise be to the Lord that we're new covenant believers. But the same thing applies to pastors today. Shepherds of the church. And don't forget, remember our study in the book of Acts, how shepherds can become wolves? Go and listen to our study through Acts chapter 20. Very important to understand where Paul says, Paul as shepherd, he says to other shepherds, remember the uh, uh, Miletus meeting, the elders of, uh, of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, where Paul says, after my departure, and he starts to say, I know this is going to happen. He's not boasting. He's not saying, oh, look at me. I'm such a big shot, you know. And when I leave, everything's going to turn to a mess. No, but Paul knows his stuff. And he speaks the truth. And he's called by the Lord. A true biblical abodah, abodah mishkan in Paul. True. 
You're, if you're listening for the first time, you're like, what in the world? What, what is he talking about? Go and listen to our study through Leviticus, and you'll understand all about Abodah, Abodah, Mishkan. But when Paul is speaking to the elders that the Miletus meeting in Acts chapter 20, he says, after my departure, I know what's going to happen. He says, you know, the Holy Spirit has called you to be shepherds, has called you to shepherd God's people and shepherd the church. But he says, after I leave, he says, the wolves, they're going to come in. And even some of you guys are going to turn into, uh, uh, turn into wolves, but then you're not going to spare the flock. Not going to spare the flock of God. And so, you know, that's that's in the New Testament. That's in the order of the new covenant. You see? And so a lot of times Christians, you know, Christians look at the Old Testament. They look at the early church and, oh, you know, that was for 2,000 years ago. Oh, that was for thousands and thousands of years ago. But I'm a new covenant believer. Well, listen, praise be to the Lord. Praise be to the Lord that you and me are new covenant believers. But remember what Paul says, what the Bible says, and Peter uh, 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 says as well, kind of intimates, but Paul says it, uh, you know, the things of old were written for us. The things of old were written for us. And when Paul says it, he's pointing to Moses. He's, he's pointing to Torah. And he says, these things of old were written for us, for our admonition, for our warning. You see, nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. The very things that we see in the in Torah, in Old Testament, and even in the uh, 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 early church, they're happening today. Very important to understand. And so it's easy to see, like Jesus, when he looks at the multitude, that he has intense compassion for them. Because look at the priests. Look at the, it should be the priest that should, I could understand asking Jesus questions. I can understand, not interrogation, but I can understand asking questions just to be certain. But the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, they're supposed to be the ones that say, hey, look, Messiah is here. Everybody worship him. They should be like John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist, a very special line. John the Baptist, a very special line. Don't forget. And so the priesthood, they should be the ones that are like John the Baptist saying, you know, I must decrease and he must increase. Go to him. That's what the priesthood should be doing. But instead, they're plotting with the religious establishment to destroy Jesus. Now, we see here in, in with this multitude in Mark chapter 8, because the prior multitude, Jesus fed them. But here we're going to see in Mark chapter 8, it's a different multitude. And in Jesus, in verse 2, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. Now, I'm going to say something here that's going to ruffle some feathers. The hungry here, they're hungry for a reason. They're hungry because they're following Jesus. They're hungry because they're following Jesus, you see? And following Jesus for them, it's come at a cost. No food for three days. No food for three days because they're following Jesus. And we live in a time today where people want a Sunday church sermon to be under 30 minutes so they don't miss lunch. And then on top of that, we see ministries for the hungry. And don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with ministries in, you know, for the hungry and feeding the poor. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as it's founding and enduring is of the Lord. You know, don't complete with the door. Remember how, you know, any ministry, any ministry must present the door. 
And when somebody enters, and when I say door, you know, capital D, I'm speaking of Jesus. Every single ministry must present the door. And then, you know, when somebody walks in that door, every single ministry must have a means for growth. The door and growth. Every single ministry must have that. Otherwise, you know what it is? It's just a humanitarian effort. It's just habitat for humanity. That's all it is. But when it's a ministry of the Lord, in the Lord and of the Lord, there must be the door. Capital D. And I speak of Jesus. And so here in Mark chapter 8, the people are hungry, but they're hungry for a reason. They left their homes for Jesus. You see, first day, no breakfast, no lunch, no dinner. Second day, no breakfast, no lunch, no dinner. Third day, no breakfast, no lunch, no, no dinner. And it's all because of Jesus. They're following Jesus. And today, you know, oh, can you teach for, you know, instead of an hour sermon, instead of two hours, you know, can you just do 20 minutes? Can you just do 20 minutes? Because, you know, uh, uh, my, my, my tummy starts to grumble and I get the munchies and I need to get, I need to go out and get lunch. You see, that's what's happening today. And then this multitude here, they're following Jesus, but it's coming at a cost. It's coming with sacrifice, you see, because three days, no food. And Jesus, when he looks upon the people, he has compassion on them. And then in verse three, and he's speaking to the disciples in verse three, he says, and if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way for some of them have come from afar. Remember in, in the Mark eight generation, no cars, no trains, no buses. You see, there aren't cars in a parking lot near Jesus. If, if people go home, they're walking it, they're walking it. And, you know, some might make it home and that's fine. You know, have a meal. But then the ones who came a great distance, no, they're going to pass out. They're going to pass out. And you see, Jesus, he meets needs. He meets the needs of the people. Absolutely. Absolutely. But there's, it poses a question here. How, you know, we know and we understand and the Bible teaches that the Lord, he meets the needs of the people. But then the question is, who's following? Who's following? And of those who follow, there's another question. Who's abiding, you see? And this is where ministries get into big trouble, really big trouble. Because a true, true, true work of the Lord never excludes the Lord of the work. Never. A true work of the Lord never excludes the Lord of the work. Very important to understand. And so we see here in verse 4. Then his disciples answered him, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Now, remember the previous multitude in chapter six, they were in a deserted place, but the town had the, 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 the there was relative proximity with the, the nearby town. Remember when, you know, when they were like, you know, it's late and, you know, and, and if these people leave, you know, they got to go now because the, the, the shops and the stores and the restaurants, they're going to be closed. And so, you know, send them away now. So there was a town, they were in the deserted place in chapter six, but there was, there was the, 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 the nearby town. And here in, in chapter eight, no. They're in the straight up boonies. They're out in the wilderness. 
And so the disciples, they respond in verse 4, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And in verse 5, he asked them, how many loaves do you have? Just like he asked before, how many loaves do you have? I love that so much. In in chapter 6, how many loaves do you have? And then here, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven, seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground in verse 6. He commanded the multitude to sit on the ground. Now, in chapter 6, it was the disciples who did that. The Lord told the disciples, hey, you know, put them in groups. And so we see here, it's the Lord who commands the multitude to sit on the ground. And he took seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. In verse 7, in verse 7, they also had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said to them, he he set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now, this isn't rationing. You know, this isn't rationing where, you know, everyone gets a crumb. You know, this isn't rationing at all. Everyone ate. Verse 8, you know, in verse 7, you know, they they, they had a few small fish. Having blessed them, he set them also before them. And in verse 8, so they ate and were filled. They ate and were filled, and they took up seven larger baskets of leftover fragments. So no rationing, no rationing. Everybody ate, and everybody's bellies were nice and full. You know, they haven't eaten. They've been walking with the Lord. No eating, no breakfast, no lunch, no dinner. Day one, day two, day three, and then all of a sudden, we see the people here. Now they're full. Their bellies are nice and full. See, Jesus, he meets the needs. He meets the needs, but at the same time, who's following? And then we go even further. Who's following? And even further, who's abiding in Christ? You see? And we'll get to the book of Acts. We're not there yet, but we're going to get there, Lord willing. We're going to get to the book of Acts. And you're going to see how the Lord, he provides. He provides. But it's not just like, you know, and forgive me for saying it like this. And a lot of times you see Christians treating Jesus like a genie, like a genie in the bottle. You know, like, you know, rub the lamp and you get your three wishes. No, no, no. A lot of times you see Christians do that where it's like, you know, they're living like hell, living in carnal, carnal ways, living in, you know, of the flesh. And, you know, oh, Jesus, give me this. Oh, Jesus, give me that. And then all of a sudden, it's like, okay, listen, you know, but the Bible says the Lord's going to take care of my needs. The Bible says he's going to take care of my needs. And so I'm going to live like hell. And Jesus, he's not taking care of my needs. You see, and a lot of times Christians, it's like, you know, you kind of had to put two and two together because it's like, well, wait a second. If the Bible says Jesus is going to take care of my needs and he's not taking care of my needs, what's the disconnect? You see, we have to put two and two together. Because Satan, what Satan does in the pneumos, remember the pneumos, you know, starts to whisper in people's ears, you know, maybe God is fake. Maybe God is a liar. You see, and we know as Christians, the Bible says God never lies. So if, if, I'm, if, if the Bible says that the Lord's going to meet my needs and my needs aren't being met, what's the disconnect? Well, we know it's not the Lord. What's left? You see, what's left? And then it begs the question, who's following the Lord? You see? And when a person follows the Lord, something else happens. Effectuation. 
you start to see, wow, you know what? I'm following the Lord and all of a sudden my needs are being met. And don't forget, for in Mark 8, it comes at sacrifice. These people haven't eaten for, you know, days. No breakfast, no lunch, no dinner for multiple days. And it comes at sacrifice. And then you start to see, wow, the Lord is meeting the needs of the people. But it's not like, you know, rub the genie on the bottle, you know, rub the genie and it comes out. What are your three wishes? No, no, no. And the Lord meets the needs of the people. But which people? You see? Remember, we're not in Nazareth. We're not in Nazareth. Remember, there was no no mighty works in Nazareth. But then, you know, you remember our prior study several chapters ago? We understand that it happens for a reason. No mighty works in Nazareth, but it happens for a reason. But then the people that are following Jesus, he meets the needs of the people. Very important to understand. And so we see here in verse 9, Now, those who had eaten were about 4,000. Very interesting what we see because in chapter 6, we see 5,000 and here we see 4,000. Very interesting. You know what we see? The numbers, they're smaller. They're smaller. So we still see multitude, but something's happening with the multitude. It's getting smaller. And we see in verse 9, and he sent them away. In verse 10, immediately got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanuta. And in verse 11, then the Pharisees came out. Then the Pharisees came out. Here we go. The Pharisees once again, good old Pharisees, good old Pharisees. You know what blows me away? It's just like our study in the book of Acts. If you've been walking with us for a while, you remember our, our studies in the book of Acts. When the religious leaders, they're chasing Paul around, you know, they're chasing Paul around because they want to stone him. They want to beat him. They want to kill him. But when they're chasing Paul around, what are they even doing? What are they doing? Here you see the religious leaders, the religious establishment. And, you know, then the Pharisees came out. But what are they even doing? Because you know what? They have jobs. They have jobs. They have as tasked in the law. They have jobs as told by Moses. They do have jobs. Why aren't they at synagogue? Why aren't they at temple? Why aren't sacrifices and offerings being made by them? Why aren't they Why aren't they praying? But oh no. Oh no. Look at their behavior. Jesus goes to one town and the Pharisees, they, they, they follow and you say, well, you know, if they're following, how can you, you just said that they, you know, who's following Jesus, but look at the heart because you have a people that are following Jesus and haven't eaten, but then you have another people they are following Jesus because they want to kill him. You see big difference, big difference. So you have, you know, look at the factions of people. It's like, wait a second, they're following Jesus too. You have all these people following Jesus. Okay. Some are following Jesus because, you know, and it's coming at a cost, you know, they haven't eaten. And they're following Jesus because the things that he teaches, they want to hear what he's teaching. They want to listen to him. You see, and you see miracles and signs are happening with them. But then at the same time, well, look at these other guys. They're following Jesus. They're following Jesus. Yeah, they want to kill him. You see, they're trying to trap him. They're trying to use the law of Moses to trap him, but they can't do that because Moses wrote about Jesus. So you look at these these Pharisees in verse 11, then the Pharisees came out, but it's, 
what are they even doing there? Why aren't they praying? If they got nothing to do, why aren't they, why aren't they on their faces before the Lord interceding for Israel? If they have nothing to do, why aren't they praying? You see? Why aren't there sacrifices? Why aren't they in temple? Look at their behavior. Their very behavior testifies of their blindness. And so the Pharisees come, we see in verse 11, and began to dispute with him. You see, they began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. In verse 12, but he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Now, it's very interesting what we see here concerning signs and miracles, because Jesus just said here, he says, no sign to this generation. But there are people who are seeing and experiencing signs and miracles. So how do we reconcile this? I mean, Jesus says, no sign shall be given to this generation. But in the very same chapter, you see, wait a second, the sign has just happened. The, 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 the food, the, 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 uh, uh, the feeding the multitudes and no rationing. It's not like, you know, I get my little crumb and you get your little crumb. No, our bellies are nice and full, you see. And remember the generations in the book of Numbers, our study in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers. If you're listening for the first time, go back and listen to our study in the book of Numbers. There's a major difference between the two generations, the first generation and the second generation. The second as having passed into the promised land and the first as having died. Very important. And so here in verse 12 of Mark chapter 8, we see no sign, no sign. But we just read about a sign with the 4,000 being fed and full. So in, in the same chapter, you see signs, but then you see no signs. You see, and then we understand effectuation. And then we understand formula. You say, wait a second, you have, you have people following Jesus, but then you look at the hearts of the people. You have, you know, uh, take a priest on one side, and then you have just the average person on the other side. On, on, on the average person, you know, seemingly, I say average person because they're not a priest, but, you know, not to say like, you know, average is like, that's a bad thing. You take the average person. The unlearned person doesn't have the degrees and certificates and the, the academic accolades as the priest. But you take the average person leaving home, no food for day one, day two, it, you know, day three. And then all of a sudden, you know, no breakfast, lunch, dinner, following Jesus. It's coming at sacrifice, following Jesus, listening to what he has to say. And yes, seeing signs. And miracles happening. But then at the same time, it's like, okay, that guy's following Jesus. This average Joe is following Jesus. But then you look at the priest and it's like, well, wait a second. This guy's following Jesus, but no signs. This guy's following Jesus. And then you look at the hearts. You look at the hearts because you understand, wow, the average Joe, look at his beautiful heart. Nice and soft, nice and soft, softer than the softest jello. What a beautiful heart. And then you look at the, the priest 
Yeah, he's following Jesus, but he's trying to trap Jesus. Yeah, he's following Jesus, but he's plotting with the religious establishment to kill Jesus. Look at his heart. You see? Can you see? That's circumcision. With the average Joe, that's circumcision. Beautiful, beautiful circumcision, not of the flesh, but of the heart. You see? When Jesus starts to speak of the heart, remember last week? Remember what we see about the seed in our prior chapters in the book of Mark? About the seed, and especially in the pneumos? What Satan does in the demonic realm? Very important to understand. And so here in verse 12, we see no sign, but we also see the sign. So which is it? It's both. What's the determining factor? The heart. You see? We see this contrast of the two generations because in verse 12 says, you know, no sign. Verse 12, Jesus, he straight up says, assuredly I say to you, no sign. And this contrast of the two generations. One is belief. The two generations, meaning the average Joe and the priest. One is belief and proximity to Jesus. You see? And then the other is unbelief and distance away from Jesus. When you look at the hearts, you see nice soft heart on one side, and then you see hard heart on the other side. You say, wait a second, but they're both following Jesus. Now, when you look with eyes of the flesh, you can see, wow, these two guys are following Jesus. But with eyes to see, eyes of the spirit, you start to see the heart. One is following Jesus to trap him, and the other is following Jesus to hear him. You see? Very important to understand. And signs and miracles still happen today. Remember, the Lord never changes. The Bible says specifically, the Lord never changes. That's what the Bible says. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Elohim, in the beginning, Elohim, the triune nature of God. He, he never changes. He never changes. And there's a very specific formula and order and order. Very important. Formula and order for signs and miracles in the church. Very specific. If you're listening for the first time or you haven't gone through our studies through the uh, 1 Corinthians, go and listen to our study, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Because there's a very specific formula for us as believers for effectuation, but at the same time in a church fellowship, there's a very specific order. Very important. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Go and listen to the studies. And so today you have churches, they fake it. You have churches that fake it. Now you see that largely among the charismatic and apostolic movements, churches that fake it. They say they have the power of the Holy Spirit and because they don't, they fake it. And that's when they, you know, they call glitter. And this is happening in big churches, major churches, global ministries. They put glitter in the rafters and then they let it down. And, you know, like the, the, the worship leader gives the cue. They let the, the glitter down. It falls into the, into the audience, into the crowd. And they call it the Holy Spirit and they pray to the glitter. You see? And they fake it. Come on, the Holy Spirit glitter? You see? They fake it. And then you have churches, they nullify the Holy Spirit. And you see that among the Calvinist and Reformed theology people. It's a theory, but they call it theology. But it's not theology. It's a theory. It doesn't line up with scripture. You see? So they fake it or they nullify it. You see? And what it reveals, 
What it reveals in them, in the charismatic and Calvinist, what it reveals is distance away from Jesus, the biblical Jesus, the biblical Jesus. You see, they can say Jesus all the time. They can say Jesus and they can say the Lord and they can say Christ and all these things. But don't forget, our Lord, the biblical Jesus, he warns us. What are the signs of the last days? The disciples ask him and the end of the age. And Jesus, the biblical Jesus says, listen, there's going to be many Christs. There's going to be many Christs. You see? The question is, which Christ do we follow? The one that we follow, everything has to line up. His word is above his name. That's what the Bible says. Everything has to line up. Genesis to Revelation. You see? You have a pastor that says, you know what? We're going to go grave soaking. We're going to lay on the grave sites and soak up the Holy Spirit. Listen, that's another Jesus. That's an imposter Jesus. You have a pastor say, hey, go ahead and take the mark of the beast. You'll still be saved. Hey, that's a fake Jesus. That's a false Jesus. That's a false Christ. The kind that Jesus, the biblical Jesus, warns us about. And so when you see churches that fake the Holy Spirit or nullify the Holy Spirit, and you see that with the charismatics and the Calvinists, it, it's a result of this chasm, distance away from the biblical Jesus. And as a result, no signs. No signs. Just like we read in Nazareth. You see, no mighty works in Nazareth. Very important to understand. Now, if you're if, if you are charismatic, uh, go to thewayunderground.com and go and listen to the uh, studies for the uh, 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 for the charismatics. And then if you're Calvinist or Reformed, go to thewayunderground.com and go and listen to the studies for the Calvinist or Reformed. Listen, if that's you, if you're charismatic Calvinist, I love you. I love you. I don't say this to hurt you. I don't say this to attack you, but it still must be said. You know, I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to attack you, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to say anything. You see, very important to understand. And so, you know, with that chasm of, you know, the biblical Jesus distance away from the biblical Jesus, as, re as a result, there's no signs. And I've had these conversations with a lot of Calvinists and Reformed theology where they ask me, you know, sometimes they ask their pastor and they go to their pastor and they say, you know, hey, pastor, how come there's no signs and wonders like we see in the book of Acts? And the pastor says, oh, that was for 2,000 years ago. That was for, uh, uh, that was for another dispensation. It's not for today. Well, pastor, why is it not for today? But it's, it's not for today because we don't see it today. And as a result, it's, we, 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 we conclude, we conclude in our council of elders, we conclude that that was for 2,000 years ago, that it's not for today because we don't see it today. And sometimes the Christian, they're like, you know, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because I know the pastor says that and okay, you know, he can say that, but it doesn't make sense still because the Bible says God never changes. And if God never changes and we see signs and wonders in, in the Old Testament, if we see signs and wonders in the New Testament, and then all of a sudden today, we don't see signs and wonders. When the Bible said God never changes, the Bible says God never changes. Elohim, the triune nature of God, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And sometimes these Christians, they come to me and say, you know what? My pastor says this. My pastor says that was for 2,000 years ago. And it's like straight up, hey, your pastor's wrong. Your pastor's wrong. The reason why he doesn't, he, the reason why he says that is he makes these conclusions based on the wrong formula. 
you see? And it's sometimes to have these conversations with the charismatics and the reformed, there's that, it's almost like a unlearning, unlearning, kind of like a detox, like a spiritual detox where, you know, somebody is ingrained in certain doctrines and there's that spiritual detox. But what's so beautiful about the word of God is that, listen, it's, it's right here. It's written. It's right here. Just open up the Bible and let's study together. And we'll study together and look, the word of God will show us. Now, when the word of God shows us, that's when we have a choice to make. Am I going to yield to this guy? Am I going to yield to that guy? Am I going to yield to that guy over there or this guy over here? Or are we going to yield to the word of God? You see, very important to understand. I remember one time I was sitting in church. This is, you know, 20 some years ago. I'm sitting in church. And I hated, you know, that the Christians, I didn't like it. And I was just, I'm sitting in church, the pastor, I didn't like him. And he was saying these things and he's like, okay, turn over here. And, you know, we opened the Bible and, you know, uh, you know, I had to have help because I didn't know where it was, you know. And, you know, and he'd start to like explain these things. And I was like, oh man, fine, I'll, I'll follow. He says, follow along and fine, I'll follow along. And I had my finger, every single word that he said. And then I started to realize, you know, my problem's not with him. My problem isn't with these other Christians. And, you know, I don't like these people. My problem, as my finger was going along the pages, following along with what he said, and, you know, he would, like, stop and expound a little bit. So I'd, like, stop my finger. But I didn't take my finger off the pages. And I'd, like, stop my finger. And I'd look up. And he would be teaching, you know. And then he'd say, okay, let's continue. And then I'd look down. And, you know, my finger would start continuing down the pages. And then all of a sudden, I realized, oh, my goodness. My problem's not with that guy. My problem's not with these Christians. My problem, it's with God. It's with the Lord. And that really puts things in perspective because, listen, you can have beef with all different kinds of people, but when it's with the Lord, you know, it, it, the severity kind of changes a little bit. Well, a lot of it, you know. And so all of a sudden, you know, to have these conversations with the charismatics and reformed and Calvinists, sometimes it's like, well, you know, but I'm supposed to submit to this pastor. Okay. Yeah, the Bible says, you know, it's a good thing to submit to the pastor. But the Bible also teaches us which pastor. Which pastor? The formula, it must be right. It must be right. Look at the, look at the priests here. Look at Mark chapter 8. Look at the priests. Look at the so-called shepherds of Israel. Yeah, you have the priests. Yeah, you have the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. And yes, you have the religious establishment. We have a priesthood. But look at them. You see? No signs. No signs. No mighty works in Nazareth. Why? The Bible tells us. And so here with Jesus in Mark chapter 8, the Pharisees, notice, they want a sign from heaven. But they're asking Jesus. They're asking Jesus, the Son of God, the one who Moses wrote about. They're looking at him in the eye and they're saying, show us a sign from heaven. Look who they're speaking to. Look who they're talking to. Look at their blindness. You see? And remember, the Lord is reactionary. The Lord is reactionary straight up. Okay. You want to have a heart like that? You want to have a hard heart? Okay. No signs. You see? 
The Lord is reactionary. Old Testament, New Testament, and still today, the Lord is reactionary. And so sometimes, you know, when I have these conversations with the charismatics and the Calvinists, oh, you're so mean. How dare you say I leave? How dare you say I leave this church? I leave this church. I've been going there for, you know, decades. How dare you say? And it's like, wait a second. You've been going there for decades? Yeah. So what? And you don't know? You've been going there for decades and you don't know what the Bible says? You see? And that's when a person starts to realize, like, oh, my goodness. Why is it that I don't know these things? Why is it that, you know, the Bible says this, but I don't, you know, I, I never understood that? Well, it's because of the so-called shepherd. Very important to understand. And for effectuation of what the Bible says, like, you know, the signs that we see in the book of Acts, and for miracles to happen, the, 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 it's a very special recipe. It's holy. And it's a recipe that needs to be found in you and me together. And you and me together, but then at the same time, you know, in, in spirit, you and me together in spirit. But if you and me were together in body where I could see you face to face and eye to eye, you know what that is? That's koinonia. That's ecclesia. That's love feast. And that's what the Bible says is church, love feast, you and me in fellowship with other believers, male, female, young and old, you and me in whom the formula is right. And where the formula gets a little bit wrong with me, you help me. Where the formula gets a little bit wrong with you, I help you. The body, the remnant, caring for the remnant. That's Ecclesia, and that's very special, very, very special. And Satan, he knows that. He knows that. And so what does he do with churches in whom the formula is right? You think there's a lot of those around? No way. No way. Because Satan knows that a church like the book of Acts, he knows that that's a church to be reckoned with. You see, he knows that that's a fellowship to be reckoned with. And so what does he do? Oh, yeah. Here, Himenaeus over here. Go and submit yourself to Himenaeus. Go and submit yourself to Alexander. Sure, no problem. Leave Paul just like the saints in Asia. All the saints in Asia left Paul. Don't be with Paul. Oh, look, we got this better teacher over here. Paul, you know, James, he, say, he, he talks to Christians and says they're adulterers and adulteresses. Don't go to James, you know. Don't go to James. Oh, look, there's Himenaeus. He's, he's much better. He likes you. He's nice. You can do your sex, you can do your crack, you can do your alcohol, and him and this, no, he's not going to call you on it. Go to him and this, go submit yourself to him and this. Alexander, nice guy, he really likes you. James, oh no, he's mean. Titus, ah, don't listen to him, he's mean. Paul, oh, don't listen to him, he's mean. He calls people leaven. You see? Satan knows all about holy formula. He knows all about a church like the book of Acts. And he does not want that to happen because he knows that's a church to be reckoned with. You see? And so we understand here, you know, what's happening where we see, you know, Jesus says no signs. When in the same chapter, signs just happened. And so we look at the heart. We look at the heart. We look at the hardness of the heart in the Pharisees because they want a sign from heaven, but they're asking Jesus, Son of God, 
who in the beginning, nothing was nothing that was made was made. It was made by him, through him, and for him. In the beginning, Elohim, and they're asking, show us a sign from heaven. Oh my goodness, look at their blindness. And so what happens here in verse 13? <clears throat> and he left them. He left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. In verse 14. In verse 14. <clears throat> Now, now the disciples had forgotten to had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. And then he charged them, saying, "Take heed, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod." Very interesting what he says here in verse fifteen. Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Pharisees and Herod. You know what that is? Religious and political. And Jesus says, beware of their leaven. Beware of their leaven. Now, as New Covenant believers, we know what leaven does. We've seen it in Corinth. If you're listening for the first time, go and listen to our study through 1 Corinthians. You'll understand more. But we know what leaven does. But leaven has precursory signals. You see? Leaven has precursory signals and its end is unbelief. That's its end. And Jesus says, beware and take heed. You see, religious leaven has an appearance of good, but it's evil. Political leaven has an appearance of good, but it's evil. You see, as an example, you see religious leaven. Look at the Catholics. Look at the Catholics. If you're listening and you're Catholic, you know, I say unto you, come out of her, my people. Go to thewayunderground.com and go to the Catholic section. You'll understand more about Catholicism. Come out of her, my people. But let's look at the Catholics. It has an appearance of something good. It has an appearance of something holy. The priests, everything, the whole nine yards. It has an appearance of something good. But when you understand formula as written in the word of God, you look at the doctrines of Catholicism, you look at the priesthood, and you realize this is an abomination. This is an abomination. It is unbiblical. That's when you understand the Bible and when you know the Bible, when you understand formula. But if you don't, people look at Catholicism and the priests and say, oh, look, this is holy. Oh, look, this, oh, yeah, you know, worship Mary, pray to Mary, pray to the angels. Oh, yeah, mass, you know, pray for the dead relatives. Pray for Mary to come down and rescue them out of purgatory so that she can take them up to heaven to see Jesus. Oh, yeah, you know, it has an appearance of good. But when you understand the Bible and you know the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, you understand formula, you realize, oh, my goodness, that's an abomination. That doctrine is an abomination. Then you look at the priests and it's like, well, the priests, they support that? They support the abomination? And as a result, the priests, they're an abomination too. But it's the Catholics that look at you. How dare you say that? How dare you say that? How dare you even think that? You know why? Because they don't understand. The blind following the blind. And if you're Catholic, I love you. But go to thewayunderground.com and go to the Catholic section. You'll understand more. Political leaven, political leaven. When Jesus says, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. The, you know, the Pharisees being religious, Herod being political. <clears throat> political leaven 
has an appearance of something good. You have, you know, uh, uh, the politician on TV, on the radio, on the newspapers, on whatever. And, you know, the politician says, oh, yes, we're going to do this. We're going to do this for the homeless. We're going to do this. And for housing, we're going to do this. For health care, we're going to do. And it has an appearance of something good. But when you look at the inner workings, you see the corruption. You know, we're going to do this for the homeless. We're going to help the homeless. And spending $5,000 of tax taxpayer money, spending $5,000 per tent. You see, a tent costs, what, 100 bucks, And they're spending $5,000 per tent? Look at that corruption. Look at that corruption, the crony capitalism. Number one, they take taxpayer money to, you know, pay off their relatives. Pay off their relatives, you know. It just so happens that, you know, the, 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 the brother or the son is in the tent-making business. You see? Oh, we're going to spend, you know, we're going to get all these tents for the homeless. We're going to get all the tents for the homeless. And, okay, taxpayer money, $5,000 $5, per tent. And then $5,000 per tent, you know. Oh, it just so happens my, my uncle is in the tent business. So, you know, we're going to spend, you know, we're going to, we need, you know, 10,000 tents. We need 50,000 tents. Here, son, here's, a, here's a, a nice check from the city. When a tent costs 100 bucks, you can go to the store, go, go, to, go to Amazon, buy, buy you know, a, a tent for 100 bucks. You see? And then the son takes, the son, the uncle, the cousin, takes the $5,000 government check. Okay, cool, you know, $5,000 times 50,000 tents. Spends, you know, a little bit money on the tent. What happens to the rest of the money? You see? What happens to the rest of the money? Corruption. And the whole time, the people say, oh yeah, we're going to vote this guy in. We're going to vote this lady in. Because we're going to help the homeless. We're going to help the homeless. And helping the homeless is a, it's a good thing. But don't forget, if the Lord has called somebody to work with the homeless, don't forget. It, the beginning and during and all of it must be in the Lord. Always with the door. Don't forget the door. Very capital D. Very important. And so Jesus says, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Religious and political. Jesus says, take heed because it has an appearance of good. But take heed and beware. In verse 16, and they reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have no bread. Now, he's with the disciples. <clears throat> Jesus, he's with the disciples. And in verse 15, he charged the disciples saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves saying, It is because we have no bread. Now, you would think, you would think, after all this, after all they've gone through, the disciples having proximity and intimacy with Jesus, being empowered to have power over unclean spirits, remember from several chapters ago, and being sent out as messengers. And after all the disciples have seen and experienced, you would think, you would think their conclusion would have some weight to it. You would think their conclusion would be Right, maybe? I mean, after all, they're the ones who are reasoning among themselves. And, you know, when Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod and the disciples, 
They're the ones who reason among themselves and look what they conclude. It's because we have no bread. It's because we have no bread. Now, when we say that, you know, you would think that their conclusion has some weight to it. It's not to disparage the disciples in any way, shape, or form. It's not to disparage them at all. But remember, they're in relative infancy. Rel relatively. They do not yet have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's going to come in the future, you know, from the Mark 8 era. It's going to come in the future. And so these guys, they reason among themselves. And I don't say these guys, you know, disrespectfully. I mean, these guys mean the disciples. They reason among themselves and they come to a conclusion. But it's wrong. Today, look at the state of the church today. Look at the state of the church today. Look at the mess we see in the church today. Look at the apostasy we see. They all have pastors. They all have elders. They all have deacons. They all have church boards. And you would think that within this council of leadership, you would think that apostasy is impossible. The council of leadership in today's churches, pastors, elders, deacons, bishops, the church boards, you would think that in this council, they reason among themselves and they formulate conclusions that are right. But you look at the state of the church today, you look at the mess, you look at the carnality, you look at the leaven, you look at the apostasy, you look at the idolatry, and then you start to understand, wow, the conclusions that these guys have formulated, they're wrong. They're wrong. You see? And you know the travesty? People follow them. The travesty is that the sheep follow them. I mean, straight up, if somebody wants to be stupid and pay the price for their stupidity, being stupid, that's one thing. That's one thing. And that's on them. That's on them. But when the sheep want to follow the stupid, that's a travesty. And that's painful. You see, if a guy wants to be pastor and be stupid, you know, that's on him. But the ones that follow him, that's devastating. And, you know, most of the time, it's the leaders, it's the leadership, it's the pastors, it's the elders, it's the deacons, it's the bishops, it's the church boards. They are the ones who are the products of seminary, divinity schools, Bible colleges, you know, at least with the disciples here in Mark chapter 8, they're with Jesus. And Jesus, he calls them on it. He calls them on it. Today's leadership is more like Laodicea. The elders and pastors of today, more like Laodicea, where Jesus is not in their midst to call them on it. And so the disciples here in chapter in chapter 8 here in Mark, they reason among... Jesus straight up says in, in verse 15, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And kind of reason among themselves in verse 16. And they say, well, he said that because we have no bread. That's why he said that. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Oh, it's because we have no bread. And you would think that they're right because after all, they're disciples. But no, they're wrong. 
They're wrong. The conclusion that they form is wrong. And Jesus, he calls them on it. Look at verse 17. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Question mark. Is your heart still hardened? Question mark. Having eyes, do you not see? Question mark. And having ears, do you not hear? Question mark. And do you not remember? Question mark. Whoa. Seemingly a heavy indictment, which is understandable. Completely understandable. But remember, the Lord, our Lord, He expects us to grow and mature and gain understanding. He expects that. It's just like, remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at baby girl. You know, baby girl is two years old. Baby girl says, mama, I'm thirsty. Baby girl's two years old. Mama, I'm thirsty. Mama gets baby girl a drink. You know, no problem. You're going to get the drink, get the juice. Here, baby girl, have your drink. Baby girl is 20. Baby girl is 20. Mama, I'm thirsty. You know what mama does? You know what mama says? That's nice. That's nice. Baby girl's 20. Mama, I'm thirsty. That's nice. You see? Because mama has the expectation for growth in baby girl. And you know what? Mama is right. Very important to understand. And so Jesus speaking to the disciples, he has his expectation for their growth. And what does he say in verse 17? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? You see? Look at today's council of leadership. Pastors, elders, bishops, deacons, church boards. Look at today. Today, 2023 A.D. It would be very nice if there was a Paul or if there was a Timothy or if there was a Titus or if there was a James or a John in their midst. It would be very nice men with the right formula who could correct them. You see? Oh, but they're so mean. Paul's so mean. James is so mean. Look, he says adulterers and adulteresses to Christians. You see? Paul calls, Paul calls Christians leaven. You see, but when you understand formula, you say, well, why, why did James say, call, call Christians uh, uh, adulterers and adulteresses? Wrong formula. You see, wrong formula. Why does Paul call them Christian? Why does Paul call them leaven? Well, look at the, look at the carnality. Look at the flesh. Look at the sex and the alcohol. Look at the extortion. And Paul says, no, that's leaven. Your rejoicing is not a good thing. Remember our study in 1 Corinthians? And it would be very nice if there was a Paul or a James or a Titus or a Timothy in today's councils of leadership, so-called leadership. Oh, but they're so mean. They hurt our little feelers. They're not nice. And you see what saints have themselves put up with? It's the very phobia of Paul when Paul says, listen, I'm afraid, I'm, I'm fearful. The, the word is phobios in, in the Greek. When Paul says, I have a fear and Paul explains his fear and he says, my fear, he says, it's not for me. My fear is for you, he says to the Christians. 
Because the preacher guys, remember in our study in, in the Corinthian letters, first and second Corinthians? And Paul says, my fear isn't for me. My fear is for you because Satan has his servants. They present themselves as ministers of righteousness. They come with another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. And he says, my phobia, it's for you. Why? Because you're going to put up with it. You're going to put up with it. And it was so strong in Galatia that it got Peter. It got Peter. It didn't almost get Peter. No, it got Peter. And praise be to the Lord that Peter had Paul. Praise be to the Lord that the church had Paul. Because Paul says, I'm blown away, you guys. In the book of Galatians. Go and listen to our study through Galatians. Paul just straight up says, I'm blown away, you guys. Why? Because I'm blown away because you're turning away so soon. You're turning away so soon from the biblical Jesus whose word is above his name. You're turning away so soon from him. You see? And the whole time they thought that they were being obedient to Jesus. And what they were doing, what the church was doing, they were being obedient to a fake Christ. A fake Christ presented to them by the preacher guys who came in. Stealthily. You see? You think, you think, you think Satan's going to fight fairly? No way. No way. He fights dirty. You see? And with all these elders that we see today, with all these pastors, with all these bishops, with all these deacons, with all these councils and church boards, you would think that apostasy is impossible. You would think that apostasy is impossible. But no. It's prophesied. It will come to pass and it's already begun. And so in verse 17 and 18, in Jesus in Mark 8, he gives the disciples a little chastisement. You know, do you not yet perceive? Speaking to the disciples. He's not speaking to the multitudes. He's not speaking to the, to the, to the, to the, to the Pharisees. He's speaking to the disciples. You don't yet perceive? You don't yet understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes in verse 18, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Remember Moses, when Moses would tell the people, you know, he would always say, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. He would always say, remember, 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 remember. You get to the book of Judges, what happened? They forgot. You get to the book of Judges, what happened? They didn't remember. They did exactly what Moses said not to do. You see? And the Lord says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. Sometimes knowledge was never given. Sometimes knowledge is forgotten. Then as new covenant believers, when the Lord teaches us about what happens in the heart, we know what Satan does. What he attempts to do. That holy seed he wants to take away out of the hearts of the people. And so Jesus here, he explains what he says in verse 19. He says, or he explains what he did and you know why he said what he said in verse 19. <clears throat> when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. And so what Jesus does, he's going, you know, back in the day, well, not back in the day, but you know, several days ago, 
you know, he says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. And also when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? Question mark. How is it you do not understand? And so Jesus, he contrasts the, the two multitudes that were fed. You know, they said to him 12 and then they said seven. So 12 and seven. 12 baskets and seven large baskets. You know, seven here, what we just looked at in Mark 8, but the previous multitude, the 12 baskets. Do these numbers sound familiar? 12 and 7, does that sound familiar? 12 tribes. 12 tribes. And for the Mark 8 era, for the Mark chapter 8 era, 7 being the number of completion, and remember, God rested on the seventh day. What Jesus is doing, he's showing the disciples something that he already spoke of in Mark chapter 2. In Mark chapter 2, when Jesus says the Sabbath was, for, was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. You see, don't forget these baskets, 12 and 7, had bread, had bread. And who is Jesus? Brother John in John chapter 6 records the words of our Lord. When Jesus, our Lord, our King, our Savior, our everything, when he's the one who says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. You see, and the blind Pharisees, they thought he was crazy. When Jesus said that, they thought, you know, he's the bread of life. He wants us to eat of that bread. Is Does that mean he wants us to be cannibals? You see, they were applying logic and intellect. And in applying logic and intellect, like the problem that in Nazareth, remember our study from several weeks ago? They didn't understand because they were applying logic and intellect instead of applying faith. And then now for the Mark 8 era. The church has not yet been established. You know, the gathering of followers of Jesus. And I mean, Jesus haven't even, hasn't even yet spoken of, you know, abide in me. Right now, the people, they're following Jesus. And yes, it's a beautiful thing. But down the road, not to, you know, in, in, you know, in several weeks in our study. But the people, they're going to soon hear, you know, don't just follow me. He's going to hear, abide in me. Abide in me and I in you. But he hasn't yet said that. But we're spoiled because we're New Covenant believers. We have Genesis to Revelation. And so this Mark 8 era, the era, the church has not yet been established. And even when the church is established, they don't even refer to themselves as the church. You know what they refer to themselves as the book of, in, the, in, in, in the book of Acts? People of the way. People of the way. That's what they called the early church. People of the way. In whom the formula was right in whom signs and wonders were happening. Very important to understand the people of the way. And so beautiful to see when Jesus, you know, you see a little chastisement to the disciples. You know, you guys don't, you don't yet understand. Is your heart still hard? And the church hasn't been established. And we see like, you know, 12 and 7, you know, it's, you know, as new covenant believers, we know seven churches. 
Brother John, who he, the Lord shows him in Revelation. He, 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 the Lord shows him the vision, and Brother John records it in Revelation. We're, we know about the seven churches. But for the Mark 8 era, what do they know about? They know about the 12 tribes, and they know about Sabbath. And what does Jesus say? I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath, you see? And don't forget, these baskets have bread. And Jesus says, you know, you know, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. But he also says, it is also written, I am the bread of life. You see what Jesus is explaining to the disciples? And not without chastisement because there's that expectation for growth and maturity. Just like with baby girl. Baby girl, age two. Mama, I'm thirsty. Okay, you know, here's your glass. You want some water? Okay, get the glass. Open the cupboard. Get the glass. Put the glass down. You know, or put the glass, you know, over in the sink. You know, turn on the water. And boom. Here, baby girl, drink some water. Okay, thank you, Mama. I'm not thirsty anymore. Baby girl's 20 years old. Mama, I'm thirsty. That's nice. What do you want me to do about it? Mama, I'm thirsty. That's nice. Get it yourself. Is Mama mean? No way. Not at all. Mama loves baby girl. But Mama has the expectation. Baby girl, you're not a baby. I call you baby girl, but you're not a baby. You see? Very important to understand. The Lord has the same expectation for you and me that we grow, that we, we, we mature. But remember, if the Lord permits, if the Lord permits, and that's not said in a Calvinistic or Reformed manner. It's said in a biblical manner. Go and listen to our study through Hebrews chapter 5 and chapter 6. You see? And much more can be said here, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll table that for another time. But much more can be said here, and we're, we're you know, Lord willing, you know, we'll, we'll explain that a little further or go a little bit deeper. And so we continue our study here in Mark chapter 8 in verse 22. Then he came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to him and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the t and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. Now, you hear us mention, you know, the mockers of the charismatic movement, you know, and that comes with, you know, a, a major warning because, you know, it's not just to the, the warning on their doctrine, but it's also a warning on what they do and their works because you have pastors in these movements, so-called pastors in these movements. They literally spit on people. They literally spit on people, rub it in their face, rub it in their eyes, you know, assuming that they're going to be healed. Why do they do that? Number one, they're stupid. Number two, they're trying to imitate what they read here in Mark chapter 8, but they do it all wrong. Take heed and beware of their leaven. Beware of their leaven and take heed. Here in Mark, when we read John's recording of a similar event where, where Jesus, what he does with the blind guy, he spits on the ground. He spits on the ground and he makes clay out of the earth. Just the same way, just like we looked at last week. Just like we looked at last week with the deaf guy making clay out of the earth. Remember, mankind made of the dust of the earth, made of the dust of the earth. The same way an artist goes, you know, dips the, dips the, uh, 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 the, 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 the paintbrush. The same way the artist dips the paintbrush in the palette. You know, a little blue, little blue on my, on my brush, little, little blue on the bristles and goes to the canvas and puts blue on the canvas. Okay, now a little green on the on my brush. Okay, now green on the canvas. You know, mix it with the blue. Make a nice little 
whatever color that is. And the same way Jesus, he spits on the, on the dust of the earth, makes clay and rubs, you know, the ears, the eyes. And Mark, you know, Mark is kind of short with his words. I mean, remember with, when we, when in, in the previous chapters with John the Baptist, you know, you see, you see this, you know, this beautiful account of John the Baptist and then you have one little sentence. Okay, John, John the Baptist is in prison now. What? What happened? And I'm so in love with Mark because he's short with his words. And so, okay, yeah, and, you know, Jesus spit in his eyes. But when you read the account in, 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 in John, when Jesus does that, no, he, he makes like a little clay with the, with the dust of the earth. You see? And so Jesus asked this, this formerly blind guy, he, he asked him if he sees anything in verse 24. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. In verse 24, I see men like trees walking. In verse 25, then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Everyone clearly. So a guy who was blind, the people begged him, you know, they begged Jesus to touch the blind guy. And, you know, all of a sudden, Jesus, he takes him away out of the town and then with the spit on the eyes and then all of a sudden asks, you know, do you see anything? And the guys, the blind guy says, I see men. He's not the blind guy anymore because he can see. I see men like trees walking. And then Jesus in verse 25, he puts his hand on the eyes again, makes him look up and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. 2020 he saw everyone clearly 2020 vision then he sent him away jesus he sent him away to his house saying neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town now jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of caesarea philippi and on the road he asked his disciples saying to them what do men say that i am what do men say that i am so they answered john the baptist some say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. In verse 29, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. You see, you are Messiah. You are Messiah. That's what Peter says. And just like with the generations, you know, we make these distinctions. Where, you know, the world and the believer, the world and the believer, because what do people say of Jesus when in verse 27, what do men say that I am? And in verse 29, what do you say that I am? You see, what is it that the world says of Jesus? What is it that people say of Jesus? What is it that your coworkers say of Jesus? What is it that your, you know, that your, your, your neighbors say of Jesus? What is it that your classmates say of Jesus? What is it that your teammates say of Jesus? What is it that your family and relatives say of Jesus? But then what do you say of Jesus? You see, just like here in verse 27, what do men say that I am? And people make their conclusions. Some people say John the Baptist. Some say, you know, John the Baptist. That's what Herod did. Herod did that. Some people say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some people say, oh, it's just a prophet. One of the prophets or, you know, another prophet. And that's what men say. That's what people say. But then for us, for you and me, what does... Your family say of Jesus. What does your relative say of Jesus? Your co-workers, your colleagues, your whatever, all the people in your life. What do they say of Jesus? And that's one thing. But what do you say of Jesus? You see? 
boils it down. You know, people can say whatever they want when the Lord boils it down. Who do you say? And it's Peter who says, you are Messiah. You see? Who do we say Jesus is? Messiah, King, Savior, Lord, everything. Our life. You see? And in verse 30, then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Very interesting. What he reveals, but then at the same time, he said, you know, don't say anything. And these are things that the disciples, when they're apostles, especially when they're baptized of the, of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, we're going to see, they're going to reflect back on and remember, oh yeah, that's what the Lord meant. That's what the Lord meant. And so now what happens in verse 31, Jesus, he says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Now, remember when Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the religious establishment, beware of the leaven of Herod, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of of Herod, because you see the faction of religious and the faction of uh, religious and political, because it seems good when you look, when, when you look at religion, it seems good. It has an appearance of something good. When you look at the, 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 the faction of political, it seems good. The political establishment, it seems good. You have politicians, oh yeah, we're going to feed the homeless and we're going to do this healthcare and we're going to do this and you know, your free college. You know. It sounds like, you know, wow, your free college, my student loan is going to be paid on, my student debt is going to be paid off, all this. Uh, wow, that seems good. What a nice guy. What a nice lady. They're looking out for me. But then when you look at corruption, when you look at corruption, you see what's happening. You look at the religious establishment, just like with the Catholics, it has an appearance of something good. But when you understand formula and you know biblical doctrine, you know, whoa, that's evil. I can't pray to Mary. There's there's, There's no purgatory in the Bible. You see, that's an abomination. You look at the politicians. Oh, yeah, all this free stuff, all this free stuff. Wow, look, he's looking out for me. Oh, look, taking care of the homeless and this and that and food and housing and all these things. Oh, wow, look, that's such a great thing. And then when you understand how corruption can easily set in and does set in, you realize like, whoa, that's evil. That's evil. I mean, you look at countries that have adopted to certain social policies and yeah, it sounds good. It sounds like, wow, look, this is a really good government program. But then you fast forward 10 years into the future, 20 years into the future. And then you look, you realize like, whoa, I mean, there are countries where people, they break into zoos so they can eat the animals. You see, so they can eat this, so they can have food, so they can live. So they'll break into the the zoo, kill a monkey and then barbecue the monkey so their family can live. You see, but 20 years prior, wow, it sounds good. It sounds really nice. You know, all this, this food and this food program and all these things and, you know, uh, the grocery stores being taken over by the government. Oh, yeah, government's going to help me out. Government's going to help me out. And you go 10 years, 15, 20 years into the future. What are they doing? They're breaking into zoos. Breaking into zoos so they can kill a monkey and eat the monkey. Kill a pig and eat the pig. You see? So their family can live. 
It has the appearance of something good, but it's evil. And so here the disciples, the Lord, you know, he, there's a little chastisement. He warns them, take heed and beware of the leaven, the religious leaven and the political leaven. And now what he does is he explains about, you know, he's Messiah. Or, you know, he asks them, who do you say? And Peter says, you're Messiah. And then Jesus warns them, don't tell anybody. But now that they know that he's Messiah... And, you know, remember with Nathaniel and, and, and uh, 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 Philip, you know, immediately, you're Messiah, who, who Moses wrote about. And but when Jesus goes to Peter, he says, you know, follow me. When he goes to Matthew, follow me. And so they follow him. But at the same time, in the course of time, it's Peter and Matthew. They start to realize, you know what? He is, I mean, you know, Nathaniel and Philip, they knew like that. But, you know, now, like all doubt is gone. No, you are Messiah. You are, like, it's beyond the shadow of a doubt. There is no doubt. You are Messiah. And when they perceive that Jesus is Messiah in the Mark 8 era, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. But in terms of prophecy, their timing is off. And in terms of the entirety of prophecy, their timing is off. Because what they think is that Messiah will be crowned king. And there's going to be restoration of Israel when the Lord is made king. That Those are prophecies about the Messiah. And there's nothing wrong with adhering to that because it's true. Prophecies about the Lord being crowned king. And very interesting that it just so happens. It just so happens that we see the crowning of man in our Wednesday study. And, you know, here we see the the Messiah, the true Messiah being crowned, you know, there are prophecies that say the Lord will be crowned king. And there's nothing wrong with having that and adhering to that. And it will happen. It will come to pass. But remember, we have to account for the, it is also written. Because Isaiah has, Isaiah does have prophecies. Isaiah writes of prophecies, but Jeremiah has prophecies, and Ezekiel has prophecies, and Zechariah has prophecies, and more. And so when you put the prophets together and understand what they say and what they write, and we account for the it is also written, we understand that Messiah will be rejected. And he will be killed and he will be resurrected. And Jesus is explaining this to the disciples. And these are the disciples who don't perceive fully at this particular juncture in Mark 8. You and me, we're spoiled today because we have Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. But in Mark 8, they didn't have that. They weren't spoiled like we are. They didn't have the writings of Paul. They didn't have the writings of, you know, of Peter. Peter, you know, Peter still is his, his infancy. Paul, he's he's with the religious establishment at this particular juncture. Young Paul or young Saul, we should say, because, you know, he's the Damascus Road hasn't happened yet. And so we're spoiled. You and me, we're spoiled today. But so I I I I get how the disciples believe that Jesus is the Messiah and know that Jesus is the Messiah. But then when Jesus starts to explain 
that as Messiah, he's going to suffer. As Messiah, he's going to be rejected. He's going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected. We see in verse 31 by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and he's going to be killed. And after three days, he's going to rise again. I mean, in verse 31, Jesus just kind of like boils down all the prophets, you know, that, you know, the, the, the Messiah is going to suffer, be rejected and, and be killed and rise again. I mean, it just boils down the prophets in, in one verse. But the understanding of the disciples, having not reached full maturity, they're still in relative infancy and they do not have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they're not spoiled like we are today because we have the full counsel of the word of God. comes as a shock to the disciples. Like, what? You're Messiah. You're going to be crowned king and you're going to rule in Jerusalem and we're not going to be under the thumb of Rome. We're not going to be under the thumb of Herod and you're going to be king. And it's very true that Jesus will be crowned king. As the prophecies say, he will be crowned king. But precursory to that, he must suffer, you see? And he will be killed. And he will be risen, as the prophets say. The same way Isaiah has prophecies, so does Jeremiah, so does Ezekiel, so does Zechariah, and so do more. And our Lord is teaching the disciples and in verse 32, he spoke this word openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter, Peter, he started to rebuke Jesus. But when he, speaking of Jesus in verse 33, but when he had turned around and looked at his, looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan, exclamation point. Get, me, get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Look what the carnal mindset does. Look what the carnal mindset does. Look what the leaven of the religious and political motivations do. The leaven. And Peter, just, you know, you are Messiah. Who, who do men say that I am? Oh, some say Elijah, some say the prophets, some say, you know, uh, John the Baptist. Who do you say? You're Jesus. You're the Messiah. You're the Messiah. And the disciples and Peter, you are the Messiah. And Peter has this idea in his head that, no, you're, this, this is political. You're going to be, yes, there's this religious aspect of it, but, you know, you are going to be crowned king. You're going to be king. You're going to rule in Jerusalem. And, you know, the, the thumb of Herod, the thumb of Caesar, no, those days are over. You will be king. But when you account for the it is also written, Peter's in the wrong. When you account for the other prophets, Peter's in the wrong. You see how Peter was, you know, looking at one aspect of prophecy and came to a conclusion that was completely wrong. And we came to that conclusion, which, you know, there were the religious and political factions within those thoughts, within those motivations. And because he didn't account for the it is also written and the prophets, 
he formulated a conclusion that says, no, you know, Peter started to rebuke Jesus. No, you're not going to be killed. You're not going to suffer. You're not going to be rejected. I don't want you to be killed. And it's not to say that those motivations are bad. They're they're good. The motivations, it's good. I don't want Jesus to suffer. I don't want Jesus to be rejected. I don't want him to be killed. But what Satan does is he takes human emotion. He takes human motivation. And he can twist them. He can seduce anybody. He can seduce people. And he does seduce people with an emotion, with a motivation. And he twists it so that people come to a conclusion that is... It creates that chasm. Separation from the will of God. That's what Satan does. And that's why Jesus says... Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Because Peter, I get I get it. I get it. I understand Peter. You're like, Lord, I don't want you to die. Lord, I don't want you to be crucified. Lord, I don't want this to happen. Well, Peter didn't know at the time about the crucifixion. But, you know, Lord, I don't want you to die. You are Messiah and I don't want you to die. You are Messiah and no, you're going to be crowned king in Jerusalem. You will be crowned king and I don't want you to die. I don't want you to suffer. And Peter taking certain aspects of prophecy and, and what the prophets wrote about. But what he didn't do, he didn't account for the it is also written. And not accounting for the it is also written and understanding what Jesus said. That he would suffer. That he would die. And that he would rise. How Satan takes that motivation of Peter, takes that emotion of Peter and twists it to the point where Peter is now outside of the will of the Lord. You see, you see how crafty Satan is? And it's the Lord who rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. And you know what? I'm so in love with Peter. I'm so in love with Peter. You know why? Because he's such a humble person. He's so humble. Because Jesus rebuked by the Lord. He just called him Messiah. Other accounts, other gospel writers say, you know, this has been revealed to you by my father. And you're like, wow, Peter, good job, Peter. But then you see, you know, when Jesus said, you know, Lord, I don't want you to die. No, that's not going to happen. You're going to be king. You're going to be crowned king in Jerusalem. And you will sit on the throne. We're not going to be under Herod. We're not going to be under Caesar. And no, you're not dying. How Satan twists his heart, twists his motivation, twists his, takes that emotion. And that emotion isn't a bad thing. That emotion is not a bad thing. I don't want Jesus to suffer. I don't want Jesus to die. That emotion is not a bad thing. But with every single aspect aspect of our emotions, with every single emotion, we take it to the Lord. We take it to the Lord. 
Joy, take it to the Lord. Happy, take it to the Lord. Angry, take it to the Lord. Sad, sorrow, take it to the Lord. All of it, we take it to the Lord. Because if we formulate these conclusions, look what Satan can do. Look what he did to Peter. Look what he does to many people. Oh, God is love. God is love. And therefore, we're going to be accepting of this. I wonder what the pastors were like in Corinth. Oh, you want to have sex with your dad's wife? That was happening in Corinth. The church in Corinth, not the world. The church in Corinth. Christians in Corinth. There was a guy, you know, they were having sex like crazy, but there was a guy who was having sex with his dad's wife. You look at the extortion, you look at the alcohol, and I wonder what those pastors said. Oh, God is love, God is love, God is love. And it was Chloe who knew, I can't submit to these freak shows. I can't submit to that pastor. I can't submit myself to those elders. No, they're freaks. You see? And so you and me, we take our emotions and we go to the Lord. And in the truth of the word of God, all of a sudden we know like, yeah, I'm angry. Just like the Bible says, it's okay to be angry. But in your anger, do not sin. You see? Very important. The Lord teaches us. And then at the same time, what happens? Oh, I'm angry. I'm angry. And the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. Okay? I'm not going to, you know, put your hole in the wall. I'm not going to kick that guy in the face. I'm not going to do this. You know, and, and Lord, I don't like this anger. I don't like this anger. And, 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 and Lord, I just, I give it to you. All of it. I give it all to you. Take it. I don't want it. And then all of a sudden, in the course of time, you're not going to have anger issues anymore. Why? The Lord took it. The Lord healed you. You see? Very important to understand. And so, what happens here is all of a sudden, you know, Jesus, get behind me, Satan. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man we see in verse 33. But look at what the carnal mind does when Jesus, when he warns, beware of the leaven of the, uh, the, of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Look at what these motivations do. You have Christians who are overly political. And don't get me wrong, you know, like, just so you know, like, I presently teach from America. And politics in America, politics everywhere. It's a mess. It's a mess. But you see, Christians who are overly political, when the Bible says that it's righteousness that exalts a nation, righteousness, the word of God teaches us about what happens to a land, what happens to a culture when salt has become good for nothing than to be trampled underfoot by men. You look at our culture today, trampled underfoot by men, you see? What has happened? Well, the Bible explains. Salt has lost its flavor. You see? And all the while you have so-called Christian movements, political movements. Oh, we're going to vote for this guy, this lady, this guy, this lady. 
But who is the person, male or female, who says, no, let's get on our faces before the Lord and let's humble ourselves and seek the Lord. Let's humble ourselves and repent. You see, look at the humility of Peter, rebuked by Jesus and also rebuked by Paul. Remember in Galatians, rebuked by Paul. And Peter didn't say, you know what? I'm out of here. How dare you say that to me? I'm out of here. Peter doesn't say to Paul, how dare you say, how dare you correct me publicly, Paul? I'm out of here. No, you look at the humility of Peter. When Peter in his letter, he says, hey, listen, you know, Paul, he knows his stuff. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he says. He says, these other guys, they come in, they twist the scriptures, but Paul, he knows his stuff. You see, and he tells the saints, you know, hey, listen to Paul, heed Paul. So beautiful to see the humility of Peter. He's rebuked by Jesus and he doesn't run away. He's rebuked by Paul and he doesn't run away. And you know, it's humility. But you look at this carnal mindset when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You see? The carnal mindset, the mind of the flesh, a mind of logic, a mind of intellect is not mindful of the spirit and not mindful of the things of God because it's carnal. It's of the flesh. Put yourself in Peter's sandals. Put yourself in Peter's sandals. You are Messiah and that's a good thing. But to apply a carnal way of thinking to a biblical truth is not good. You are Messiah. You're going to be king. You're going to rule in Jerusalem. And you know, the thumb of Herod, the thumb of Caesar. No, those days are over. And things are going to be a-okay. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You see, that's what leaven does. That's what leaven does. It produces a carnal mindset. And with the carnal mindset, a mind of the flesh, a mind that is not of the spirit, a mind that is not mindful of the things of God, as written in verse 33, what it does, it leaves the door open for satanic influence. Satanic influence, that door is open. When that's a door that needs to be shut, it needs to be closed. You see? Things that Paul writes about, you know, to, you know, uh, 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 test the spirits, understanding that Satan can present himself as an angel of light. You see? And we have to test the spirits. And the carnal mindset, a mind that is not mindful of the things of the Lord. Look at how that door is open. And we see it in Peter here. But we also see Jesus, how Jesus corrects him. And you see the humility of the humility of Peter. Oh Lord, you're right. You know, Lord, you're out. For, you're right. Forgive me. When Peter chastises, when Peter rebukes, or when Paul rebukes Peter, you look at the humility of Peter. You know, Paul, you're right. Paul, you're right. Forgive me, Lord. You see, I gotta get right with the Lord. But then you look at pride, and carnality, and you look at Christians today. They're not humble like Peter, you see? 
How dare you? I'm going to have sex like crazy. How dare you call me on it? I'm going to do my crack like crazy. How dare you say that? God is love. I'm going to do my Ouija boards. I'm going to do the occult. I'm going to do all kinds of, I'm going to do my gambling and I'm going to pray that I get winnings at the casino and all these things. And you're going to say that that's a bad thing. How dare you say that? You know what? I'm out of here. I'm not going to listen to you anymore. You're so stupid. I'm out of here. You're so mean. You're so mean. I'm going to go over here. This guy, Alexander Jimenez, these guys are nice. I want to go to church and feel good about myself. Listen, the only way you and me are going to hear the word of God and feel good about ourselves, it's when the formula is right. Because the word of God always confronts the flesh. Always, always, always confronts the flesh. Always. You're going to feel that sting. You're in, the, you're in the sex and you're in the Ouija boards. You're in the cult. You're going to hear the word of God and you're going to feel the word of God confront those things because the Lord confronts the flesh. The Lord confronts the carnal nature. And yes, there's a pain associated with that. There's a pain associated with that. Remember, Paul says, you know, I wrote this letter to you and I didn't want to write the letter to you, but I did anyways. Why? Because this godly sorrow. Did I want you to be sorrowful? Not necessarily. But I'm glad you were. Why? Because of what it produced. Because of what it produced. It led you to your knees in repentance. You see? Where are the pastors like that today? Who speak truth? They know it's going to hurt. And they speak it anyway. Why? Because of godly sorrow that it's going to bring a person to their knees. Where are pastors like this today? You see? Instead, you have pastors. You know what? You know, there's a thousand people in my church. And if I speak truth, 500 are going to leave. And if 500 are going to leave, you know, I can't pay rent. I can't pay the mortgage. I can't make my car payments. You see? I can't fund my retirement. And so what do pastors do? They don't speak truth. And, you know, that's one aspect. Those are the hirelings. There's, there's, there's other things at play here. Satanic influence. The door is open. And that's what the carnal mindset does. When a person is not mindful of the things of God. When a person applies logic to every problem, a person applies intellect to every problem instead of falling on their face and saying, Lord, what is your will? Lord, what would you have me do? You see, it happened with Peter. And Lord, you are Messiah. You are Messiah. And the Messiah explains, hey, I'm going to die. And Jesus says, no, I don't want that to happen. Apply, you know, taking a very valid emotion. I don't want the Lord to die. I don't want him to suffer. And how Satan takes that very valid emotion. And he twists it. And he aids a person to formulate a conclusion. Taking foothold on that carnal mindset. You see, taking foothold in that logic, taking foothold of that intellect and saying, okay, you know, rebuke Jesus. Peter took him aside in verse 32 and began to rebuke Jesus. He formulated in his mind, okay, I'm not going to let that happen. 
You say you're going to suffer? You say you're going to die? No. And G Peter began to rebuke Jesus. And the Lord says, get behind me, Satan. He didn't say, get behind me, Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Because he knows that Satan was at work in the heart of Peter. You see? Very interesting what we see. You say, how could that be? How could Satan be in the heart? Well, remember the pneumos? Remember the pneumos? And these are things that Peter, he's going to learn even more in the pneumos. But not yet. He's still in relative infancy here. That's what Levin does. The carnal mindset. That's why Paul says the remnant needs to separate from the leaven. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Okay, remember the Lord is reactionary. And the Lord is reactionary. And we see that as exemplified in the Lord himself. But also through certain priests. Not the majority of priests. No, but certain priests. Yes. You see it exemplified in the prophets. You know, the Lord is reactionary, just like with Samuel. Okay, you want to reject the Lord? Okay, here's the warning. You still want to reject the Lord? Okay, here's your king. Remember our study in 1 Samuel? We see that exemplified in a very small number of priests. You see it exemplified in the prophets. And you also see it exemplified in the apostles. You see? And when Paul says it's the remnant that needs to separate from the leaven, and people see that, oh, he's so mean, he's so mean. He calls these people leaven, he calls these people leaven. Well, why does he call them leaven? Well, he does the extortion on the employer. Well, he does little sex over here, no big deal. The guy wants to have sex with his, his dad's wife, no big deal. God is love. What? That's not a big deal. That's absolutely leaven. You see? Oh, Paul's so mean. Paul's so mean. James, he's so mean. He's so mean. But what people willfully forget, it's what leaven does. The impact of leaven. You see? Leaven. Things carnal. Things of the flesh. You know what that is? No circumcision. It's not soft hearts. When you see leaven and carnality and the works of the flesh and the things of the flesh... No, that, those are hard hearts, you see? And the hard hearts and the things carnal and of the flesh and the leaven and the logic and the intellect, just like with Peter, which leaves the door open for satanic influence, things demonic and things of Lucifer. You hear this and you might be saying like, well, wait a second, you're going too far with this, Lucifer? You're going too far. Really? Look what Jesus says to Peter. He doesn't say, get behind me, Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. You see? Wow. So powerful. Now, you know, when you see, when you start to understand the Gospels, when you start to see the gospel and what our Lord teaches us about the pneumos and things of demonic warfare and spiritual battle and spiritual warfare and what Satan and the demons do, when you see, now you understand why Paul says what he says, why James says what he says, why John says what he says, and why Peter says what he says.
When Peter just flat out says, you know, Peter doesn't say, hey, I'm a brainiac. I know everything. Listen to me. He says, no, you know what? In in my lane, how the Lord has me, I'm going to teach you like this. But at the same time, listen to Paul. He knows his stuff. These other guys, they think they know their stuff, but they twist the scriptures. But Paul, listen to him. I mean, picture that. Put yourself in Peter's sandals in, 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 in Galatia. You've, when Paul says, I marvel, I'm blown away that you're turning away so soon. And Peter was included in that mix of people who were turning their back to Jesus. And then Peter publicly, publicly rebuked Peter. Publicly, not in private. Peter, Paul didn't say, hey, Peter, you know, let's have this private conversation. And there was the rebuking. No, Paul did it publicly. Publicly. And look at what Peter could have done. Oh, Paul, you're so mean. I'm done with you. No. And then when Peter writes his letter, he doesn't badmouth Paul and say, oh, yeah, Paul's so mean. No. He says, listen to Paul. Listen to Paul. He knows his stuff. Look at that beautiful humility. You see? So powerful. So beautiful. And you say, look at that humility, and yet you call it power? Yes, absolutely. Just like with Stephen. When I first read the account of Stephen, it's like 20-some years ago, I was angry. I was mad. I was mad at Stephen. I was mad at the, 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 the Christians that were with him. I was mad at everybody because he was dying. He was being stoned. And nobody came to his rescue. The Christians didn't rally and say, hey, you know what? We're going to pummel you guys. You want you want to throw stones at one of us? No, we're going to destroy you guys. We're going to pummel you guys. We're going to throw stones back and we're going to come. And it's just going to be a brawl. And you know what? You're going to lose. And I was, I was so angry. I remember reading the Bible and I was angry. Like, what in the world is happening? And then I was mad. I was like, oh, Stephen is so weak. To fight back the Christians, they're so weak. Why aren't they fighting back? Why don't, why don't you just, you know, the, at the first stone, it just starts to brawl. Forget the stones. You know, even when it, when things were brewing, when things were just like, you know, why didn't the Christians just fight back and say, you know what, we're going to pummel you guys. We're going to take you guys to an inch of your life. You want to mess with us? Okay, we're going to mess with you and you're going to lose. And I was so mad at the Christians. I was like, what in the world is happening? And I had to repent. I had to repent. And today I understand. And I look at the saints. I look at Stephen. And you see such beautiful humility. And yes, you see strength. And yes, you see power. Carnally, you read the account in the book of Acts. And it's like, but he's so weak. Look, he takes the stone, the first stone in the head, the stone in the shoulder, the stone in the chest, the stone in the back of the head, the stone in the face, and, and you call that strength? You call that power? Yes. Yes. Why? Because in our weakness, our Lord is strong. You see? Humility. Who is like our God? I'll give you the answer. Nobody. You see, it's only him. 
And our Lord is teaching. And here in this era of Mark 8, our Lord is teaching. And he says in verse 34, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples too, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, a person could say, but we follow already. We do follow. Look, we're right here. But Jesus goes deeper. Jesus goes deeper. I mean, you know, when Jesus warns of the last days that there's going to be many Christ, the disciples ask him, what's the sign of the last days? And you're coming. And Jesus says there's going to be many Christ, many false prophets. And these false Christ propagated by these false prophets and false teachers. You take a lineup of a, th a thousand Christs. They all look the same. They have the same voice. Everything, they, they, they dress the same. And 999 are imposters. 999 are imposters. And one is the real Jesus whose word is above his name. They sound the same, but they don't speak the same. You see? Only one is the real Jesus. So we found the real Jesus. Are we done now? No, we're not done. We found the real Jesus. And we're not done. There's more. There's more. And as New Covenant believers, we're going to learn. We're spoiled today. In 2023 AD, we're spoiled today because we have Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. And we're so spoiled today. Here you have followers of Jesus in Mark 8, but Jesus, he's going to soon teach about abide in me and I in you. Does that mean we're done in 2023 AD? No. There's more. That's what Jesus says in verse 34. Denial of self. Take up your cross. Notice, Jesus, he already knows the manner of his death. And the cross is an instrument of death. And Jesus says, take up your cross, complete and total denial of self. Just like with the, 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 the followers at the beginning of chapter 8. Sacrifice, following Jesus came at sacrifice. You know, no breakfast, no lunch, no dinner. That's just the first day. Second day, no breakfast, no lunch, no dinner. Third day, no breakfast, no lunch, no dinner. But then Jesus supplies. Jesus provides. And today you have Christians, hey, you know, you teach too long. You teach, you know, can you make it 20 minutes? Can you make it? Okay, we'll give you some grace. Can you make it 30 minutes? Listen, make it 30 minutes and, you know, and, and because, you know, we get hungry. We want to have lunch. And, you know, the, uh, the lunch hour, we have this nice place that we go to and we like this food that they have here. And so 30 minutes and that's it. And then the pastor doesn't do it. The pastor continues teaching for an hour or maybe two hours. And then the person says, you know what? I've, you know, several families, several people. Well, if you're not going to cut it down, if you're not going to do it 30 minutes, if you're not going to do it, okay, we'll give you some extra grace. If you're not going to do it within 40 minutes, we're just going to go to another church. So, you know what? If, if you don't do it within this time frame, we're going to go to another church because, you know, we like to eat this at this restaurant. And if we go to this other church, we can we can accommodate our bellies, you know, if we go to this other church. So you, you do, do it for 40 minutes or else we're going to leave the church. And then the pastor doesn't stop. The pastor can keep, you know, an hour and a half, two hours, an hour. Okay, we warned you, pastor, we're out. And you look at the saints, you look at the followers of Jesus here. 
Breakfast, lunch, dinner, day one, nothing. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, day two, nothing. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, day three. All of a sudden, Jesus provides miracles, signs to the followers of Jesus. You see? What if a person, remember the, the, the 5,000 before, in the, the, the first feeding, the 5,000 before, and now it's not 5,000. Now it's a smaller number, 4,000. You see? The numbers are dwindling. The numbers of the followers of Jesus, it's getting smaller and smaller. But what if, you know, wh why is it getting smaller? What if on day one, the person said, you know what? I, I can't miss lunch. I can't miss lunch. You know, day two, I, you know what? I'm starving. You know, hear my belly. You know, the, the belly is grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. Day one, it's like, oh my goodness, I'm starving. I'm starving. Man shall not live by bread on bread alone. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the word of God. Every jot, every tittle, the word of God as food, as sustenance. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What about that? What about that diet? What about that food? What about that sustenance? The word of God. You see? But in the last days, there's a famine of the word of God. Why? Why does that happen? Why is it that we have the word of God, but yet there's a famine of the word of God? You see? Did the prophets lie? Did God lie? No. We understand formula. I mean, you look at the Catholics. They have Bibles. You look at the Lutherans. They have Bibles. Episcopals, they have Bibles. Calvinists, they have Bibles. Charismatic, they have Bibles. But yet you see a famine of the Word of God. Why? Wrong formula. And so Jesus, he speaks about this complete and total denial of self. To take up your cross. You and me take up our cross. Knowing that the cross is an instrument of death. And that's the manner in which we follow Christ. And also abide in Him. You know what that is? It's the narrow way. It's the narrow way. In verse 35. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever, does, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You see, when you walk on the narrow path, don't expect to be liked. Don't expect to be liked. People will leave you, friends, family, relatives, even Christians. They're going to leave you. Laodicea and Philadelphia don't mix. But there's a reason for that. But even still, even still, there is a peculiar people traveling in the wilderness in these last days. You know what that is? That's the remnant. That's the remnant. Who is currently and will fulfill prophecy. For such a time as this. 
In verse 36, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? This is what happened to Demas. Demas, the cares and the riches of life. Remember, he was with Paul, the, the tiny bubble of Paul. That was Demas was there. And then the cares and riches of life, something that, you know, Satan with his seduction, bright lights, big city, land of opportunity. And in the case of Damas, hello like a fire. You see, Satan doesn't fight clean. He plays dirty. What happened in Damas? What in the world happened with Damas in that beautiful, beautiful seed that was once planted in his heart? What in the world happened to that beautiful, wonderful seed? And Jesus says in verse 37, or what? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? These are heavy. Exchange for the soul? People give a lot in exchange for their soul. I mean, look how many people make deals with the devil for riches. You see? They make a deal with the devil because they want money. And Satan tried to tempt our Lord with riches too. Very important to understand, Satan, he doesn't, he doesn't fight clean. He fights dirty. And Satan, when he seduces, he's not going to lure and seduce with a kick in the face. You know, hey, come over here so I can kick, in the, kick you in the face. Come over here so I can stomp you in the head. He doesn't do that. No one would fall for that. He seduces with candy. See? Hey, come over here where there's this money. Come over here, land of opportunity. Hey, check her out. Check him out. You see? He lures and seduces with candy. He's not going to say, hey, come over here so I can stomp on your face. No. He seduces and entices with what seems to be good, but the whole time it's a trap. It's a trap to destroy and kill. You see, even with Peter, Peter, he tried to prevent the crucifixion of our Lord. He tries multiple times. I mean, here, you know, Jesus rebukes him straight up. Get behind me, Satan. You know, Peter, like, you know, you're going to be the Messiah and, you know, where you're going to, we're going to crown you king and you're going to be king and we're not going to have Herod under, we're not going to be under the thumb of Herod anymore, under the thumb of Caesar anymore. You're going to be king. And it's true. Jesus is going to be king. Literally, like, you know, with a crown on his head. But before that crown, there's the crown of thorns. You see? Mocked, beaten, ridiculed, killed, the cross. Prophecies of the Messiah being killed. Prophecies of the Messiah being risen. Prophecies of the Messiah returning. Prophecies of the Messiah being crowned king. But by faith, you and me, he's already crowned. King of kings and Lord of lords in our hearts. You see, the circumcision. Softer than the softest jello. That's the heart of the remnant. 
And Jesus continues in verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let me tell you something, my beautiful, beautiful, beloved friend. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of his words. In your life and for your life, do not be ashamed. And if he calls you to speak, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. If he calls you to speak, you absolutely won't be received well among the Christians. Among the world, among Corinth, among even Christians. You absolutely won't be received well among the masses, even Christians, even the church. Remember, Philadelphia and Laodicea do not mix very well. Actually, there is no mixture. They don't mix. But as for you, when you're not ashamed of Jesus and you're not ashamed of his words and you apply his words in your life and it's for your life. And if he calls you to speak and you speak truth and everybody hates you, you're going to be clean and pure before the Most High God. I mean, even if he doesn't call you to speak, if he calls you in, you know, another capacity, you're going to be clean. You're going to be pure before the Most High God. And the Lord sees, just like in, just like in the judges' era, I so, I'm so in love. I have a, a pain and a love for the, the judges' era because you see a whole lot of mess in the judges' era. But then you also see, wow, look. Look at this guy. Look at this lady. Look at this daughter. Look at this other lady. Look at this guy. And the eyes of the Lord reveals to us a remnant in the judges' era. You see? And as for you in these last days, in the era of 2023 AD and the span of time before our Lord returns, a whole lot of mess, a whole lot of wickedness, a whole lot of adulterous and sinful generation. But as for you, clean and pure before the Most High purified by the high priest in the order of Melchizedek and faithful servants of his priesthood. They will show you the way to the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful people of the way, a remnant of these last days. God bless you. I love you.